Hi, I'm Mitch Kasperk, and welcome to WinnipegHockeyTalk.com podcast number 85. Today I have a very special guest. Uh, you might know him from Twitter, you might read his works. Um, he's a guy that writes about your Jets, uh, sprinkled in with a little bit of analytics and a little bit of common sense. He's one of my favorite reads, and a, a guy you should all know and love. His name is Peter Tessier from the Hockey Buzz. Pete, long time coming. We've been meaning to have you on here, and... It's uh, finally worked out. I'm glad to, glad to have you join me. Hey, well, thanks for having me, Mitch. And you know what? We've talked about this over the years a few times, and I probably the ball has been dropped by me more often than not. But uh, thanks. Great to be here, and uh, thanks for having me. So for those of... Uh, uh, like, I'm, There's lots of people that are very familiar with you, but uh, now we live in two worlds, in the, this world and the Twitter world. Uh, for people that don't know you or read or see you on Twitter, just let them know a little background on yourself with the Hockey Buzz. So, you know, funny, the funny thing about Hockey Buzz is, is it definitely has a reputation, um, infamous or not. Eklund. And, <laughs> and, and, you know, I, I, I discovered Eklund and back, back in the, uh, first, uh, the major lockout, the one that gathered all the press and had the, uh, the, the real sort of, uh, initiation of, of Twitter rumor, sorry, online rumors and chat rooms and when he sort of launched his site i was someone who'd been kind of jumping in into the the chats he had and kind of following along and you know i was a moderator on that site for a bit and just kind of keeping the site clean because i just like talking about hockey with people and then uh he gave me a chance after the canucks bloggers uh left and went on to actually the greener pastures and he said, you know, you write some stuff and you jumped in. And so I wrote on the Canucks for a few years and Vancouver is where I'm from. And that's sort of my home. And, and for all the people who, you know, follow me on the Jets, I, I always say that the Canucks and Jets met in a, in a, in a seven game series. I'd want the Canucks to score, <laughs> score the final goal in game seven. OT. Oh boy. <laughs> it's a horrible thing to say, but you know, that's my team. You never give up on your team, no matter how lousy and inept and, and poorly managed they are. You never give up, but the Winnipeg's my adopted home and, and I live here now. And, but you know, you, you can never give up on who you grew up with. So, and, and when the jets came back, I had some connections here in town and, and I went on to, uh, start writing about them and I've enjoyed it ever since. And I, I really like, uh, discussing Jets hockey with people and just what it is and, and learning from people because there's all sorts of cool insights out there and and that's half the fun of, of being on Twitter and, and writing and, and reading what people have to say and, and writing and then hearing the responses that people give you. You don't always agree with them, but you know you can learn from them and, and it makes it fun. Well, you know what's funny? If you took all the guys on Twitter and all the bloggers that we both interact with we all have a little bit of different views, but for the most part, if you put us all together in the same room and took all the stuff that was common, you'd probably have about 75 to 80 percent, and it's that fringe 25 percent, uh, the outside, the, the outside outliers, where you might disagree here and there. But for the most part, uh, that outside 25 percent isn't what causes Jets wins and losses. It's it's the play of your core and the, your goaltending and all the and your coach and all the things that go along with. And I'll give you an example. It's like everyone in Jets Nation has their own idea on their optimum lineup. Some guys want uh, Lemieux out and Patan in, and some guys think that uh, Lion A should be here and he should be there or he should be there. Um, you know, Joe, Mo- Joe Morrow should be a press box guy. Some guys can't stand Sherratt. Uh, some guys can't stand Myers. Everybody has their whipping boy and their guy they, they, they don't like. 
But for the most part, when all these guys are playing as good as they can or even playing very well, generally speaking, they're not the problem with our lineup. It's, uh, there's, it's, it's, it's an 82-game grind. People might think that this team is actually better than it is. It's a very good team with very good talent. Uh, they're far from uh, they're far from perfect, and like I said last week or a couple weeks ago, they really still are a work in process because they're still very young. So the Jets had a tough week. Those first two games this week really had uh, had us on our on our heels. Uh, the win today really makes up for that. And but you know, we've talked in the past, and we've all said like it's really hard to crap on them because their record is so good. Although we all saw the warts. You know, we could see it coming as far back as last year, but we prevailed uh, come playoff time last year. They kind of buckled down, played pretty good hockey, but in an 82-game season with a young team, you're not going to be perfect. And our warts were full display this week, weren't they? They were. They were. And you can I – th- I think, you know, going back to what you said, you talk about warts and you talk about what you see – there's the there's the thirty thousand foot view, and then there's the granular view, and on a granular uh, on a thirty thousand foot view, Mitch, you you see you see a team that's top in the central, arguably for basically up until last year, and, and maybe even still the toughest conference in hockey or toughest division in hockey, and then you look at the granular level of, well, how are they how are they doing this? And that's where the concern comes in. And, you know, sometimes it's really hard for people to make the jump between looking at a business and looking at a hockey team. But there's a lot of principles there and, and that, that overlap and are, are sort of, you know, they, they, they're concurrent to success. And, it's no, you know, you know it as well as I do that there's a ton of former professional athletes that will have consulting businesses that come into businesses and teach them how to be teams and how to operate and, and fix problems. Well, I think there's a lot of business decisions that can be put into professional hockey or professional hockey teams and professional sports teams that can help them fix things. And that's when you get into the granular aspect of things. What are the details? Where are things not working? And how do you look at it? And you know, you make your twenty-five percent and a seventy-five percent discussion point, and I, I couldn't agree with it more. But at some point, when things, you know, when they walk like a duck, they talk like a duck, <laughs> they, they they crap like a duck. Well, it's a duck. And right now, the Jets are laying a lot of duck eggs, and they're getting by based on pure talent because they are a very deep team in talent. And, and let's not forget when when Nick Ehlers comes back, which should be very soon, um, Matthew Perot might be on the fourth line again, and that's how deep they are. That you could put a guy who's arguably a, a, a top six player on, say, fifty percent of NHL teams on the fourth line. So that's I, I always think that's why they're winning because they have such talent through four lines that they can get away with having bad games. And they can still win more than they lose. But you're right. There are warts there. And the granular level says there are things that need to be addressed. Now, what needs to be addressed? That's where the argument comes in. Well, you know, it's funny when you um, you mentioned dealers. And I, I've been thinking about this quite a bit. 
Uh, a lot of times, Paul Maurice, uh, he's very stubborn. He's set in his ways. He's, uh, he's got more old school in him than I do. Uh, I think I've adapted better at 63 <laughs> years old to the, the modern NHL game. I get it. Um, um, the, the game has changed, and sometimes when I watch the Jets and I th see things I hate, I think it's just them until I remember. And I do watch a lot of hockey, so I'm watching a lot of other games, and I see it you know, on every team, although... When you're watching your own team, it's always a little bit more magnified. But, um, you know, <laughs> getting back to that. So a lot of the moves and decisions that have been made were based because of injury, not because of a, a smart thought process. So Ehlers comes back. I don't know where he goes. Um, because of the injuries, they shuffled the lines. And Andrew Kopp was taken off the Lowry line and put down as a fourth-line center. And I'll tell you something. I wish, I hope he stays there. I like him as the fourth-line center. And I like Appleton on the right side. Uh, I have no problem with Brendan Lemieux uh, <laughs> being the extra man and going into the press box. I really want to see how Paul Maurice handles the shuffle. And uh, like you say, where does Pro end up? Who ends up with Tanev and Lowry? Um, where does Connor go? Like, I'm on record as I just, I don't think Kyle Connor is a first-line left winger. I think he's a very good winger. And I don't think he's a first-unit power play guy. I think our team is stronger when he's on the second unit and when he's down the lineup a bit. Um, but that's that's just my preference, so I'm not going to start screaming at them and howling at the moon and saying Maurice is an idiot. Um, he does things for a reason. I don't know what they all are. Uh, a lot of times they don't make sense. But what are your first thoughts now on, like I was saying, cop on the fourth line? Where do you think, uh, where do you, when Ebers comes back, and it should be, and like you say, anytime soon, how did the lines get reshuffled? What, 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 first of all, what would you like to see and what do you think will happen? Because we know with Paul Maurice, that's two different things. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's, this is, you've just tossed a grenade is the first question. Yeah. Oh, smokes. Um, let's, let's think about this in two ways. There's the Paul Maurice way. So it's, it's expectations. So what I expect to happen is Paul Maurice will go right back to where he was prior to the Bufflin and Ehlers injuries. Okay. And he will use situational opposition and situational um, uh, situational situations to roll out either Ehlers or Connor on the first line and alternate them back and forth. Okay. I That's what he'll go back to doing. And then when it comes to the rest of the lines, well, that that really um, changes things. I think Paul Maurice has figured out that Jack Roslevic is not ready to shoulder the burden of being a center at third line level and maybe even fourth line. But in a pinch, he can do it depending on dynamics and the game situation. So you look at this and you go, well... Ehlers comes back, so let's just say Ehlers, Shifley, and, and Wheeler. And then you have Connor, Little, and Line. And then you go, well, where's Perot fit? Is he still with, with Lowry and Tanev? Okay, yes. So now you've dropped Roslevic right back down to be Kopp, Roslevic, and what, Lemieux? I'd rather go Appleton. I'd rather go Appleton. And honestly, because I got so much hate mail today... I'll say I'd rather go Patan, and, <laughs> yeah. and 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 let's and and see what happens with with him playing with a Perot and a Roslevic. I, I 
I think you need to find these things out. Where you know, and I'm steering this a little different in a different direction, but I, I only ask it as a question. I don't know the answer to it, but someone came at me pretty hard today about Patan again, and and he is a lightning rod of controversy with with this team and and, and certain segment of the fan base. The issue is, is if you're going to trade Patan, if you just you're not getting a no one is paying a second for Nick Patan right now. No. So now you've taken a highly touted second round that some feel you got an incredible steal from getting him, and you've managed to turn him into what? A fourth or a fifth? Yeah. And that's the concern I have about somewhat about what the Jets are doing. And is, is is asset management and where you see asset management and how do you structure that? And you touched on something earlier. Paul Maurice isn't just stubborn. I mean, this guy is like a he, he's he's worse than stubborn. He has trust issues, and he's got a certain way of doing things. And unless you do it his way, it's the highway. And Nick Patan's seen the highway, and 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 maybe that's fair for some people. But if Paul Maurice's high, you know, if Paul Maurice's way is what we see right now, then I have some questions about the legitimacy of his methodology. I can't say I disagree with that. I mean, and there's nothing wrong with questioning your leadership. Um, I question Chevy all the time. I question Paul Maurice all the time. It doesn't mean I'm right. Um, but what would it have hurt in a couple of these games where uh, Little was kind of borderline to play, Lemieux was borderline to play? Are you trying to tell me that putting Nick Patan in the lineup is like the death knell? My God. Exactly. Like, what has Patan done? To alienate himself to Paul Maurice, besides the fact he had to play with Thorburn on the fourth line. And God love Chris Thorburn. He was a good yeah. soldier. He did, you know, like, and here's the thing too, Pete, is I don't shit on the actual player. Like, I'm not going to blame Morrow or Sherratt or Myers or any of that stuff because it's not their fault. They're they're there. They're the ones that are being played. Yeah. Um, there's decisions in, a, you know, in an 82-game schedule, and you have a 23-man roster, why are you afraid to play those last couple of guys? And I've always said that let those last, those fourth-line guys, if there's five of them, there's usually an extra D-man around and a couple extra forwards, you know, whether it was Dano, Patan, whomever, I didn't care. Put those guys in a blender, throw them out there. If if you have a five-game stretch and they all play three, what's wrong with that? Like, really, what is wrong with that? I don't understand it. I, I have no answer for it. It's something that's been boggling my mind for a long time. And, uh, you know, I get some some of the fan base that gets mad. Like, some of them are they're over the top with thinking that, you know, Patan's going to be the savior. Now, once again, I saw Nick. <laughs> I've seen Nick Patan at his best with the Winterhawks dishing exactly. out 100-plus assists. I know how good he is. We've seen him in the same world ju- junior as we've seen Josh both not passengers on that team, but drivers on that team. So you can't exactly. you can't explain to me that he's got an AHL pedigree. He's very good there. So he really hasn't been given a chance to transition to the NHL yet. And you got uh, you you blame that on either management or coaching or both. That's where I see it. Yeah, my my belief with Patan is is that he hasn't made the right reads that Paul Maurice wants in in the neutral zone. And I think he that's probably the area of his game that he needs to improve upon in Paul, for, for him to gain Paul Maurice's trust. There's a way Paul Maurice wants something done. And 
when Jack Roslovic was being relied upon last year in, in certain situations, you heard what Paul Maurice talked about was his reads. That was the first thing he said. He wasn't worried about his offense. He wasn't worried about his um, coverage down low as a center. He was worried about his reads in the neutral zone and during the transition game, whether it was against him or, or with him. And he gushed about those and said, you know, he had to make some difficult reads. And he never says that about Patan. He right. never gives him compliments in those details that he thinks is important. So that, I think, speaks to Maurice's trust issues. And whatever Patan does, he doesn't earn it that way. But what he has done is absolutely convince people that there's an element to his game that pushes the play in the right direction, which is to the opposition net. And, you know, someone who has a lot more... Um, a lot more fans than I do and, and has earned a lot more respect used a phrase of when you see that with a player but you don't understand why it's happening because you have a sample size issue and this is Tyler Dello of The Athletic now yep, yep. everywhere he says that's where you get all your scouts in the room and you say what is he doing on the ice that's making this number happen because the number isn't lying the number is being gathered from the exact same place all the other numbers are. So if you say that number's a lie, then they're all a lie. And that's where the scouts have to come in and say, well, you see where he's here in this part, and he did this? That's the read he made to do that. And if that's the case with Patan, this team owes it to itself, not to Nick Patan, but to, to itself to find out why he gets these numbers. And Paul Maurice gets the numbers. The team is spending a truck ton of money on analytics data provided to them in accessible form they're not just getting raw scrapes and having to figure it out they're paying a ton of money and there's people within the Jets organization who don't even believe in the value of it but understand why it's being done because it's it's really complex and it goes against sort of their history in hockey and so they are believers, but are they actually understanding what they're getting and is what they're getting being heard in the right way? And I think, you know, you can go down the analytics argument all you want, and I'm not here to convince anyone that they have value, but basically every business on the his, on earth that is trying to make money right now, and the Jets are a business trying to make money, are using analytics to be better. And I come from an insurance industry background, which is the godfather of analytics. Mm-hmm. And Actuarians at their best. Actuarians at their best. And I had a really interesting discussion about someone with someone in the analytics community about the actuarial math and what it means in predictive modeling. And they said, yeah. It, it, they literally told me, they said, you're right. It is insurance. You, you're buying insurance to be accurate. You're paying for someone to make you more accurate about the future. And somehow back to Nick Patan there is something that's preventing the team from d- taking the next step to find out is he actually this guy and we need to use him in a certain way because there's certainly been opportunities as you said to put him in the lineup to figure out is this the time we can use his services use his skill set yeah. and it's been passed over now, well, I think there's a contrary argument to that, but we can get down that road later. Well, I think the problem with, for most analytics and the guys that use them, the guys that are you know, for or against them, are, I don't think anybody, even the most 
expert guys can actually tell you what percentage of that data is relevant to evaluating talent. I mean, you know, as a scout, it's obviously going to be the eye test first, and then it's going to be this, and it's going to be that. You all have your different ways of grading it, and it's funny that, uh, you know, and the thing is, I guess what turns off a lot of people is the analytics seem to be able to be skewed uh, in an argument either way, pro or con. And, you know, it's just a matter of settling. I mean, uh, some teams might put more value into it. Obviously, the Jets don't put enough. Or maybe um, the analytics um, argument with them just does not trump the bias they have for or against a player. So, yeah, it's uh, it's uh, it's strange. You know, analytics, as far as hockey is concerned, is still it's still really in its infancy. It's still raw. It's still not perfect. Um, at some point, a generation from now, it'll be secondhand, second nature, and everybody will be able to figure it out. But uh, yeah, I mean. I still, it, it comes down to all the, you can have all the information you want and how, it's up to you how you use it. And then right now the Jets seem to be doing things their way. And, you know, for the most part, you can't really criticize them. But uh, the next part, uh, yeah, there's uh, there's questions that do need to be asked, isn't there? Yeah, there certainly is. I think I think the analytics argument is, it, it, it really, it's frustrating because, for me, it's jumped the shark in terms of I'm not going to keep up with the bleeding edge of it anymore. I'm going to use the raw stuff that's been around for a while, yep. and, and I'm going to I'm not going to enjoy that. And I'm going to let the people who want to go down that road go down it, and I'm going to trust what they find because, frankly, they're not they're not just Johnny Come Lately's just showing up on social media or in a blog and saying, oh, by the way, this means this. There are some people who have some very significant pedigrees in, in statistical science that are presenting some very cool ideas. I'm just not there of, of understanding it because it's way beyond my level of expertise in, when it comes to data. And that would take me, that'd be like taking on another career to go down that road. So I trust what they're doing is leading in the right direction because there's enough people doing it. But Analytics are kind of like a recipe, in my opinion. They they are one part of it, and it's like say you had a really good cookie recipe, but you didn't know what made it super good. Analytics are going to help you understand that the reason why everyone's buying your cookies are because of this thing. They'll help you distill it down and give you an idea of where you need to focus on things and where your value is and where you're not valuing something. And it's just like saying it's just like a recipe for cookies. You know what? It's it's the um, you know it, it's it's the it's the sugar cane that you take from Jamaica in the special organic field where the virgins run through it and <laughs> walk off all the sugar and stuff. That's your magic ingredient. So don't mess that up. And they'll help you figure that out, and, or at least they'll point you in the right direction. And and that's where I think everyone needs to be. Calmer, yeah. When 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 some smart people out there on social media say to you, you know, you can look at it this way. I get it. You're a fan. You want to believe what you want to believe. You don't have to go and say, oh, it's just numbers. But you should say, yeah, okay. You know what? I'm willing to look at that and also recognize your limitations, because I certainly do. And and the guys out there who are doing some really amazing things. I, like, I can't keep up with it, and I trust that 
it's going to lead them down a path where they're going to say, nope, um, we're done. And this doesn't have value or yes, this has something that we wish we could get more data on, but there's something here. And that's, I think that's really cool. Yeah. I'm looking forward to the day when it gets really refined and, uh, yeah, hopefully it'll be sooner than later. <laughs> I wanted to bring up player a, tracking, right? Yeah, exactly. That, I think that's, that's the Holy grail. What we get with the player tracking and, you know, when that comes in, we'll just have a whole other arguments to have. There you go. Um, Patrick Liney, you know, I get, once again, I get Paul Maurice giving him a little break off the first power play unit, but what I don't understand is why they don't have him playing his same position on the second unit and why they've moved him into the middle. That To me, that makes no sense. He's got to do a better job of working. I mean, put it this way. You know, he's going to be the Steve Stamkos, uh, Alexander Ovechkin of the next 15, 20 years. That's offside, off, no, off-wing slap shot from that hash mark. Is going to be his trademark. Why, why mess with him and put him in the middle on the second unit? If you're going to put him on the second unit, fine, but put him in his same spot. Like Pete, can you explain that? Does it make any sense to you whatsoever? So before he before he went to the second unit, they moved him in, into yeah, the middle, the Shife spot, yeah, and and and, and to Shifley's spot, and they tried to feed him some pucks, and there's some scrambles, but it didn't work. Shifley scored from his spot, so did Roslovic. But if you look where they scored at, they scored because they adjusted to the formation of the other players. Yes. This has been my big beef with Line A. Is, so I was at the, um, what was the last game I was at? And it was the Columbus game? It was Columbus. No, it was, no the San Jose game. And they had a few power plays. And I sit in one of the end zones, so I was sitting there and I'm watching it. And I was sitting with with a friend of mine, and he's he's turned on line A. He's he's completely down on the kid. Blah blah. And I said, I said, don't worry about whether he's a good hockey player or not. Let's worry about why he's not doing what he's done so well. And I said, watch, look at the setup. He's watching Wheeler with the puck, and you know he wants the puck, and Wheeler's trying to find the seam to get it to him. But what's Line doing? He's not shifting his feet as Wheeler's holding the puck and he's moving around with it. And Line's not shifting with him. He's not setting up the pass angle for him. And that's, it's those, like, you know this better than anyone. It's the minutia of the game, a game of inches, whether it goes off a post and in or whether it goes off the post and into the corner. If you're not like these guys are so refined in how they pass, how they see things, their vision. If you're not adjusting with them and Lainey was just he was sitting there and he's looking his sticks sort of there, yep. but it's not there. Yep. And it's those little things like if I'm Wheeler and, and I mean, I used to teach this with guys you know, with my kids playing hockey and, and everything, right up to midget with my oldest son, I said, no one's going to give you a pass if you're skating up the ice on the far wing and you're, you've got one hand on your stick and you it's pulling behind you. Like, you've got to be, you've got to be able to take the pass because I wouldn't pass to you. And, and Liney's not giving his, his mates that sort of feeling like you're ready to take this if I can get it through. So, that's a risk analysis thing. You're, you're like, if I'm Wheeler, well, I've got to thread this through three guys or, or pass two guys and over to you. So it's got to be a perfect pass. But you're not standing there 
ready to take it. Uh, I can't do that. That's too big a risk because if I don't make it, then I'm really in trouble. Yeah, have you noticed and, that uh, that Wheeler Pass is it's gotten tougher the last 10, 15 games? Oh, has it ever? And what I've noticed though is because I mean, coaches are smart, teams are smart. They look at you know video and film and that. And I have a theory also. <laughs> a lot of what you're saying, uh, Liney's not maybe moving enough, and, and he doesn't have to move a lot because you don't have to move a lot on that side. But what's happened is is the teams now the penalty kill they don't respect Kyle Connor. Because he is not a viable option. When that puck goes down to him, I mean, he's literally two feet from the crease. And do you think he ever just turns around, tries to stuff it or go on that, that thing, you know, put it on the short side high? He's looking for the bump to Shifley. They know he's not going to shoot it. They know he's not going to crash. And he's actually very, if you look at our power play, the two most stagnant guys are Connor and Line right now. Bufflin, yeah. Shife is moving, like he's juggling in that little tight box. So really, you're left with Morrissey or Buff on the point and Wheeler that are moving, 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 moving. And uh, I just think it's a simple thing. Like, Wheeler wasn't taking that shot. So he started shooting the puck. That loosened up the gap. Yeah. Uh, Kyle Connor just needs, every once in a while, just take one of those passes instead of bumping it. Just turn and just try the wrap around. It's a low percentage play. But the thing is, it might cause a scramble. It might get teams thinking. Some of those ones do slip in. Um, yeah. We're just creatures of habit. I mean, just because it worked good, it doesn't mean that you you have to you have to adjust also. And uh, I mean, the whole game is hockey is it's such a split second thing, and it's all about adjustments, isn't it? Yeah, and and you know what, Shifley used to be low down beside the the, the um, net, kind of back of what you know us old guys say Gretzky's office. Yeah, and he used to be down there, and Connor would be in the middle too. Yeah, in that slot, and I think. I think when you start heating up and the, the power play was so good, you know, they were just, they were clipping along, home and away, it was just deadly. You get static and you, and you sort of forget what made you successful is you made adjustments that made the, the, the opposition have to adjust to it. Oh, well, holy, holy shit, Shifley's down low now. And now I've got to do it. And I think the thing about, you know, people talk about Shifley you know, you know, you sort of hear people say, "Well, Line can pass really well," and blah blah. Shifley's an excellent passer. Oh yeah, his vision is fantastic, and you know, you give him some space and time. The thing about Shifley is he draws attention. So if he's down low on on the PP and and he's sort of by that that low post on probably so if you're the goalie on the left side right side if you're facing him um he's going to get a lot of attention and that's where it opens up space and you know this is the this is the whole idea of teams look at what you're doing recently so change it up a little bit yeah yeah make make adjustments and i think that's one thing that you know you you look at some of the greatest coaches in the nhl and guys like trots um, Scotty Bowman, they find ways to do just the most minuscule things with their players that just c- create total chaos for the other team. And that's where I think, you know, some aim has to be taken at Paul Maurice. You can't hold on to what you believe in so much that when it's not working, just because you believe in it, it doesn't mean it can't be changed. I think that, uh, no, you're right. And the thing that's funny also is that, uh, you know, at the trade deadline last year when we got Paul Stastny, he knew how to play that low post where Connor is. It was everything he did was quick. You know, it might not have always worked and it might not have been the best decision, 
but he didn't hang on to it cradle. Then look, it's all about split seconds. There were some of those little bump passes he did to Scheif. They, they were in the back of the net before he, before Wheeler had dropped his stick to the ice after making the pass to Stastny. And that's just, once again, that's, you know, it, you know here's the thing, too, Pete. You know, we like to harp on things. And I'm a big believer in practice. And I know in today's NHL, there's always been an excuse every year. I mean, <laughs> the Jets were horrific this week. When could they have possibly had time to have an actual practice and fix it? The schedule is yeah. ridiculous. The all-star break is ridiculous. Scrap that thing. You know, uh, the condensed schedules during the Olympics. All these, you know, the lockouts. There's always an excuse. The season is just, it's too compressed for, you know, 82 games for a coach to actually do coaching. And uh, and that's kind of what I saw this week. You know, you might be able to sit down and get a little bit of film in, but uh, it's not the same as being on the ice and working on it. But, uh, you know, we're getting close to the end here. I don't want to keep you on too long, but uh, I really want to talk about uh, the, the trade deadline is uh, two weeks tomorrow. And I, I, I just have this sneaking suspicion the Jets Nation's in for a big thud. Um, no, we're going to hear the old excuses. Uh, Shiv, yeah, we were we were in on that. We were close, but uh, we just couldn't get it done. Um, I don't know how there's any way they couldn't have done the Jake Muzzin trade unless L.A. did not want to trade him within the conference because so, what Toronto I, gave up, I don't know. I, so I, I want to chat about that because I've got a little, little interesting angle that you will know from being a Winterhawks guy. Yep. I have been wondering why anyone, and I love the kid and I have a connection to him through a friend of mine, um, I know the family, uh, Brendan Leipzig. Yep. Why no one has wanted to try and get Nick Patan and Brendan Leipzig back together. <laughs> and... Maybe there's some something else there that I'm not aware of, but I I I know how Brendan ended up in L.A. and it's it's kind of interesting if you're a Canucks fan and there's some out there. Well, we let's just say that when the Canucks get when they turn the corner, I don't think Travis Green's going to be there much longer. Um, that's that's a whole other conversation. But you know, this is a Leipzig's a kid who has skill. Tanza Kidua's skill. They were together on the Winter Hawks. Yep. They were they were lightning in a bottle. Yep. I mean, my goodness. You know, and if any team needs to find a value forward to ignite some offense, it's LA. I can't believe but there you go. As we said earlier, what are you gonna give up to get to get Brandon Leipzig? We're well, not gonna give up anything. Yet the upside could be or not Brandon Leipzig, sorry, Nick Patan. And the upside could be massive based on the situation you put him in. And this is this is the thing. I would have loved Muzzin as a Jet, and I think he would have solved some incredible depth problems on the left side. Yep. And he also, I think the other thing that the benefit of adding Muzzin in, particularly because he has another year, is watch what he could help Josh Morrissey grow into. So, yeah, we're going off topic about someone else's trade, but man, that's one I really think it was a swing and a miss, and he could have helped the team in a lot of ways. Well, I think the only reason we didn't get him is I just think LA just they wanted to send him east. Uh, that that was the uh, the rhetoric, and that was the narrative I was taking on that, and it makes sense because that happens all the time. It's uh, you know keep him out of our conference, but uh, yeah, um, you've I mean we've all heard the you know we we even hear it on the broadcast the trade trade board that. Uh, you know, if uh, Mark Stone wasn't a Winnipegger, would there be the same, you know, fever, fever over him? And Duchesne's a center. 
Um, it's going to take a bit to get those guys. I think the prices will come down closer to the deadline. But, you know, I, I just, uh, Chevy's, put it this way, Chevy's not the Messiah jury of the uh, of the NHL. Yeah. He's not ready to load up yet and uh, and uh, make the big team uh, make the big trade like the Raptors did, because they still I think they still like their team and I still think I know they they realize they're young and they don't want to piss away a bunch of prospects. First round picks are fine, but uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, I, I'd like to think they're in on one of those guys. Um, I'd like to think they're in on Mark Stone with the intention of, you know, if we get him, he's not a rental. We're going to do everything we can to sign him. And I can't stand listening to the radio shows and they go, oh, we're in cap crunch. We're in this. We're in shit. You know what? You got an off season to fix that crap. Start moving out some, start moving out some of the deadwood. You don't have to be loyal to every goddamn guy on your roster. Exactly. And that's the point where I think a lot of people, particularly in the analytics community, are saying you need to treat, sometimes look at contracts as simply risks. And are you willing to take on that risk or not? And, I mean, you want to you want to sign Mark Stone long term? It means what you're doing is you're, you're taking Brian Little's 10-team no-trade clause. Actually, it might be 14. I can't remember which it is. And you're you're giving them up for pennies on the dollar. Yep. But the point is, is you're weighing the risk, and you're not worrying about, well, it's Brian Little. We need to get this for him. Well, the reason what you got for Brian Little was you were able to afford Mark Stone. That's your value. And I'm not picking on Little here. I'm just yeah, saying he's a good that. example though. He came in parole and, and those guys. Exactly. Yeah. Interesting. You bring up Stone and and you know. I, I mentioned this on some stuff I've done with Hockey Buzz. Like I, Mark Stone's dad used to be a client of mine. He's a super interesting guy. And right when Mark was in his um, first RFA negotiation with Ottawa, mm-hmm. we were he was in the office and was chatting with him one day. And he says, "How's this negotiation going on?" And he goes, "He's a, he's he's a character, and he doesn't pull punches." And he said some things, and I won't say it on air. Yeah. And I was like, "Wow!" I said, "I said," and I said, "You're not even you're not even um, in the negotiation." He goes, "No." He goes, "You know, I, I talked to talked to Mark's agent. I talked to Mark. You know, and I'm not there. I just provide some advice." And his dad's and his dad's not. Uh, um, he's a smart guy, and he goes, "But he goes the back and forth on this stuff." It just makes you hate everyone. Yeah. And he goes, luckily Mark doesn't have the same fire I do about that stuff. <laughs> and it wears on you. So, I mean, it's it's really interesting. And I think, you know, Mitch, you would know this better than anyone too. A good agent is going to protect your client from the, the emotional side of all this, right? Yeah. And so – you know, it's hard, and, and it'll be really interesting to see what comes out after the trade deadline, depending on what Ottawa does with Duchesne and Stone. I, I'm a believer that Duchesne helps the Jets more than Stone. Oh, for sure he does. I think, in my thinking. I but, agree. I agree 100%. But he's 100% a rental. Yeah. So, you, you're... You, I don't think you can overpay for him. And the difference with Stasny was is you had a belief you could re-sign him. There is – you may not be able to re-sign Matt Duchesne because as a center, I, I'm expecting Duchesne to get 8.5 to $9 million. Yeah. I think you could probably get Stone in around Wheeler money. And 
to do that, you've got to make sacrifices here to do it. And I don't think there's any sort of joy in him coming back to play in Winnipeg and going, oh, it's my hometown. I think it's a nice feel-good thing. But I don't think there's any belief that he is going to go, oh, this is my childhood dream to come and play professional hockey in Winnipeg for my, you know, my, my, my childhood home. Um, that's moved on for him, in my opinion. And, and so you want him to stay. You're making sacrifices elsewhere. And, and those are deep sacrifices. But it's also a risk. Yep. And there's ways to mitigate risk. And, and that's what separates the good GMs from the bad ones. It's going to be an interesting two weeks. It's going to be an interesting off season. And like you were saying, with uh, when you when back, just I just want to backtrack one second. Uh, for an agent and for uh, a GM and everything, uh, negotiating negotiating an RFA contract is torturous compared to UFA. Because RFA, you got to point out the good, the bad, and the ugly. Exact arbitration and all that stuff. It's just not fun. So, yeah, I guess it's probably a lot more fun to be a UFA and everybody everybody wants you, right? So, um, yeah. do you, okay, just here's this, no, I think I'm going to have you on again after the trade deadline. Okay, I'd and, love to do, be back. And we're going to reflect on what happened. Do you see a Stone, a Duchesne, a Hayes, uh, a smaller nugget, uh, maybe just a veteran winger to take some of the heat off of the kids? Uh, or do you see um, Chevy going with the standard? Well, we were in on a lot of that, but the prices were too high. What's... What's your gut tell you? My my gut tells me that Chevy has two plans. He's going big game hunting. Yep. And think he I think he finally has the assets to do it. And if anyone wants to worry about losing someone, just remember if you've drafted well and you've done your due diligence, all of a sudden losing Foley isn't such a big deal in the grand scheme of things. And I think they can do that again. What I think ends up happening is there's someone who's a little more desperate in the Jets and they settle on sort of a, a second tier guy like a Zingle or, um, you know, someone in that of that ilk. And, and that's what happens. And they come in and there's that's probably the likelihood because there's someone who's willing to overpay believing they can go forward. And I think the, the the interesting variable in a lot of this is, I think people forget about this, is that there's a team out on the West Coast of Canada that actually has a lot of cap space and very strong financial backing who is way overperforming than where they thought they'd be. Yep. And not that they're going to try early, but everyone knows that the um, Aquilinis who own the Vancouver Canucks like big-name players and there's two in stone and duchene who they could both afford to sign if they wanted to in the off season and i think you know that's got a way on the back of everyone's mind if you're in a rival gm that the canucks have a ton of cap space and a team that's way better than they thought they'd be so they're going to be offering up money in one of the most comfortable places to play in canada and that should be a real sort of threat to things so that's why i sort of believe that in the end, someone will overpay for on a hope, and hope is never a plan. But the Jets sort of end up in that B level of, of category of players like a Zingle, and I think Zingle might not that he's a huge play driver, but I think he might be enough that it gives them some comfort that there's some options going forward. Yeah, um, and you mentioned something there that is very interesting, and a lot of fans don't understand because they they turn into fans, of course, and. Uh... 
you know, having drafting well and having good prospects, it's 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 currency. And um, uh, I'm not opposed to trading a Vasilainen. Um, I've seen enough of Rostovic where I wouldn't part with him. Um, I've seen enough of Nico where I don't want to part with him. But let's just right. say we had to. Let's say that there was like, it's like a ride or die, and that's the guy we want. And you go, oh, shit, you know what? We drafted Sammy Nico in the seventh round. We had no expectations. That's like found money. Now, that's not a good way to look at it, but it also is, conversely, it is a way you can look at it, isn't it? You know, sorry, I just turned my mic down because I was coughing there, so pardon me. Um, what I, I find about arguments like that, and I saw one today, was Sam Uniki is like found money, so why do you trade the free stuff? Right. Why don't you trade the stuff that costs you something? to get back rather than the stuff that you sort of got for free. And, and Niku is a perfect example of that. Teams dream of finding players who can play in a top, top four or even six role in the seventh round. Yeah. That's, that's, that's what you want your scouts to be able to find. So you, you shouldn't be getting rid of them. You should be holding on to those guys because you basically got them for free. And you should be saying, who have we overpaid for? Right. So, you know, in this sense, you know, there's guys like, you know, you look on the Jets roster, there's, you know, I, I, I as much as I, I don't think he's someone they want to part with, I think Logan Stanley has to be a name that is going to get talked about. Yep. I think um, CJ Sice is going to get talked about. And I think, and obviously Vaseline is going to get, get talked about, but, and people, oh, you can't get Vaseline and he's got all this. Well, if the cost of getting Mark Stone is Christian Vaseline and, and whatever else, and, you, and you've got a reasonably good expectation that you can sign Mark Stone again, Christian Vaseline isn't a problem because you're in win now and Mark Stone gets you that much closer. Christian Vaseline is three years away from being meaningful to the Jets. If he can, and he's got to get on the roster. Well, I've always been a big believer in the proven versus the unproven, too. Yeah. I mean... Uh, well, that's exactly... Yeah, that's it's an interesting point. Yeah, it's... Uh, put it this way, I wouldn't want to be a, a GM or... Like, I wouldn't want to be the Jets GM, <laughs> to be honest no, with no. you. He's in a tough spot. Uh, it doesn't matter what Chevy does, he's going to get criticized. Uh, one half of the fan base is going to say he overpaid for somebody in the next... Uh, the other half's going to say it's all oh, it's all good old Stan Pat Chevy, but uh, let's just you know we'll sit back here for a couple of weeks, see what's going on. Um, the trade deadline's at Monday, so I think maybe what we'll do is, generally speaking, we do our podcasts on Sunday night or Monday mornings. We're going to wait okay. to Tuesday morning, and I'll have you on with Daryl. Me Sounds and good. me and Daryl will talk about the trade deadline next week, and then the week after will be the trade. We'll uh, we'll talk about it again. It should be fun to see. Uh, Retrospective analysis is a beautiful thing, and we'll see how smarter, how dumb we were. But uh, Pete, it's uh, it's we're at almost at forty five minutes, which is a little bit over the time I'd like to make people listen to my stupid voice. But uh, it was a pleasure having you on. I uh, love to have you on again. And I've been thinking about doing a hot stove with uh, me, you, Scott, and uh, Daryl in the next uh, month or month and a half or something. Nice to get the four of us on here and uh, bounce some stuff around and have some fun. But uh, it was a real treat having Absolutely. you on. Uh, your knowledge is awesome. For people that don't uh, don't read Pete's stuff, please do. Uh, like I say, it's a ni- nice mix of analytics, common sense, and uh, you know a guy who actually watches the team and uh, knows what he's talking about. So uh, 
Thanks, uh, nice yeah. hearing. Nice coming from you. <laughs> no, that's awesome. To, awesome to have you. Uh, we'll talk in a couple of weeks, and uh, thanks for doing this. My pleasure. Always happy to be on. Thanks again, Will. Glad we finally made it happen. Right on.